If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com backslash FPA. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. If you would like to earn continuing education credit for your FP&A certification from the Association of Finance Professionals for listening to the show, go to the show notes for details on how to earn the credit. Finally, if you enjoy listening to FP&A today, please go to your podcast platform of choice, click the subscribe button, and leave a rating and review of the show. And now, on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by Data Rails financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FP&A. We'll provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FP&A. I am thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Mikas Kroms. Mikas, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. Thanks for joining us. So he comes to us from Latvia. He currently works as the co-founder at Trace.Space, and he earned his bachelor's and master's degree from Rotterdam School of Management. So if I could have you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, just if you could introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, sure. So I, I studied my bachelor's and master's in Rotterdam. I did my master's in finance. After that, I went to uh, investment banking in London for a few years. Then more recently, went to back, back home to Latvia, did a bit of VC, did my let's say first startup, which failed and didn't go anywhere. Then joined Localize as the you know, very early employee looking after finance and operations. So and trying to figure out you know, how to make everything work in this uh, high growth environment. And then more recently, I was at Chili Piper which is uh, another B2B SaaS company and as well kind of initially looking after uh, revenue planning, but then more broadly after finance and a bit of strategy. Yeah. And so now I, since uh, kind of end of January, started my own business with uh, two other co-founders in the requirements management space. So it's another B2B SaaS company. That's that's what I've been doing. That's what I love. It sounds like you have a love for this, the startup space, those early day companies and B2B SaaS. Is that? Yeah, that's correct. That, that's it's it felt really exciting and I, I kind of never never got out of it. So I've been been thrilled to be here. Well, good. I'm glad it's worked out for you. That's what we all want to find is something we love doing. So you know, it looks like you started your career working in transactions and restructuring. That's kind of investment banking. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that experience and what that was like? Before I went into banking, I did a year in KPMG in uh, transactions advisory. It taught me. A, a few good things, but I thought the pace was a, a bit slow. So I went back to my master's and then jumped into banking. Actually, I found banking is obviously challenging because the, the work hours are pretty brutal and the, and the, there's a lot of work. You know, you kind of prioritize work all the way, but uh, it did teach me a lot. It's not just the technical skills, but also the emotions of going through these large transactions and the the entrepreneurs, they, you know, it could be something that they worked their whole life for. And then suddenly they come to this transaction and they're selling the company 
And it's, uh, it's, it's really, really exciting. And honestly, I would recommend anyone young and ambitious to, to go through those a few years. And it's just the best school ever. Thanks for sharing that experience there. It sounds like you learned a lot in that investment banking space and it helped prepare you for what you're doing today. So it sounds like a good experience. Sounds like on the transaction side, you kind of recognized what you didn't want to be doing long-term. Wasn't quite the right pace for what you like doing. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's quite fair. I think the professional services companies are very good at, at setting a, you know, a sort of a ladder that you mm-hmm. can climb, but the, the trade off and they train you and they take care of you. They can raise your salary a bit every year. But the trade off is that if you want to grow faster, then it's very hard to jump over the steps in the ladder. And so you gotta, then you gotta find a way where that's possible and, and startups tend to be the place, but, uh, yeah, I think for anyone starting, it gives you such a broad overview and can try so many things, learn so many so many items. It's, it's really helpful. Thanks for elaborating on that. And that makes sense to me. I would agree. Yeah, very structured. We're startup, right? Roles can be changing a lot. Your title may be one thing, but you're doing something different. It's changing every day, right? High-paced, constant movement. And so speaking of that, obviously, you just co-founded a company, you know, Trace.Space. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how you came to found the company and what you guys do. What we're building is essentially the new next generation of requirements management. It's a category within product lifecycle management. When you're building complex hardware plus software products, the process is a bit more uh, challenging than agile. And very often you're not able to build things in the agile methodology. And so you need to write out all the requirements beforehand and then you need to trace them through. So you have to make sure that uh, everything happens as uh, as you said it would and and you need to test these things through and it's kind of a very complex process and personally my two other co-founders they were in this industry before and so they they kind of have a lot of that earned knowledge i came from outside so i was the only one that uh, didn't know anything about it and initially it took me a couple of months to get convinced that this is a let's say worthy endeavor but actually the more i dug into it then i saw that it's actually these amazing systems engineers that build some of the coolest products in the world, they're actually using something that's very, very outdated. And we just saw this is, this is somebody has to help them. Somebody has to do something here. And so we decided it has to be us. And it's one of those boring and complex industries, but we wear that as a badge of honor because it means nobody else was tackling it and it's worth tackling. So, yeah. Great. Thanks for sharing a little bit about more on the story there and. Sounds like it took a little while for you to you know, get comfortable with the idea, different space, which is can be uh, rewarding and challenging at the same time as you have to learn you know, a new space as you're doing a new company. So you were at previous to Trace.Space at Chili Pepper, and you were the director of revenue planning. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? I know you had a couple different roles, but just in particular, kind of what it was like being over revenue planning. The way I joined Chili Piper was uh, with the CEO, Nicholas, uh, co-CEO Nicholas. I kind of said that, you know, I'm looking for a new role and I spoke to him and, and then we kind of discussed how we think about what planning is, what does it mean, how it should work. And uh, I think he saw that our views are quite aligned. The methodology that he called is, is AO, so it's kind of splitting it into three components. So the whole planning process is split into three components. So actions, yields, expected outcomes. And actions is pretty much anything that you do that it could be things like hiring an SDR, improving your marketing stats, you know, launching ads. So that's something you actually do. And then yields is what does that actually yield? So every SDR, so sales development representative 
can be yielding six to 10 meetings per month. You measure how much actually was achieved. And then expected outcome is kind of what you, you expect out of that. And then you measure, first of all, whether you did the action. So whether you hired this SDR and second, how many meetings did they actually achieve? And so that kind of creates that actions yields expected outcome model, which is quite different from budgeting, but that's how uh, we did it. And that's what my job was is actually is not to figure out what people will be doing, but is actually to gather this data. So I went into every business leader to ask, you know, what planning to do in the next quarter, in the next year? What do you think that's going to yield? And so we put it all together in a single model. That's how we figured out what the revenue is going to be like. It sounds like a bottoms-up approach based on what actions are you going to perform? What's the uh, yield you expect from those actions? And what's the outcome from those yields? And then you would measure against that. Is that a fair summary? Yep, that's exactly right. I think the, the fundamental piece is that you split it in two. So it's not like you say, oh, well, you know, we underperform in outbound because the SDRs didn't do something. It's actually, first of all, you check whether you actually did the actions. So, okay, we actually didn't make the hires. They're just not yielding this. Or we actually, they're not yielding. They're yielding everything correctly. We just didn't actually make the hires that we said we would. So it's, it's kind of the logic it comes out is very, very different because you really try to split out these two things. Got it. So when you're measuring it, you're really trying to measure it in two areas. You're trying to measure, did we do the actions? And if we did the actions, did we get the results from those actions we expected? And so then you can That's tell, fair. okay, the shortfalls due to our actions or the shortfalls due to our assumptions on what those actions would yield. That's correct. How did you find that approach worked? What did you see as kind of the benefits of, you know, kind of planning it and looking at it that way? I think it's, for me personally, I feel that that's probably the only right way to do things at the early stage if you're growing fast, because it's really hard to know what your life is going to be like even in the next three months. And that's just an inherent part of the growth process. So if you think about the company's life cycle, at first, you kind of go from, we know nothing and everything is possible, all the way to, let's say, being a public company and paying earnings per share in a very predictable way. And in that process, you kind of you grow and eventually you plateau. And when you plateau in your growth, you start focusing more on items that are lower in your PL. Right. So initially your valuation is only based on revenue growth. Then it's on, let's say, gross profit. Then it's on EBITDA and then it's on net income and EPS and so on. And what I observed is that the way you grow is you, you try to figure out what are predictable items that you can do. So let's take, for example, the same SDRs or paid ads. In after a while, once you hired enough SDRs, you hit a ceiling and you can't actually, even if you hire some more, you're just not going to get any more opportunities in that month. So it means you hit the ceiling and it's just a question of being getting them more efficient. So it kind of creates your baseline of outcomes. And then on top of that, you just keep experimenting. That's how you create this layer cake of your uh, go to market of your revenue of like things that are predictable, things that are unpredictable. And you try to make sure that over time you layer many, many predictable things to kind of grow your revenue. I like what you said there. And I mean, as you were saying that, I was relating that to my own business right? Like an action might be, I launch a digital course. What do I expect from that? Okay. If I had an expectation, it's one of two things that caused my shortfall. Either I didn't launch the course or I didn't achieve the targets I thought I would with launching it. Right. And then I can go back to the drawing board. Okay. And say, okay, what actions do I need to do to increase that yield? Right. What are the actions I'm going to take this month? And I can again, measure against that. 
say, okay, did I do that? Did I do the advertising? Did I do a referral program? Whatever it might be. And I can see at a very small level, especially you know, kind of a business of one, which is my case, how it would be very easy to lay things out like that. We often think that way and we don't think of it as planning, but that's what it is. You know, you don't think of it as, you know, budgeting. It's not really a budget. You're not setting a budget, but you're planning. That makes a lot of sense to me what you've said there. I could see where that approach could be really helpful, especially in those those early days. So next I want to talk about, you wrote an article last year while you were at Chili Piper. It was titled, Why We Don't Have Budgets. And so, you know, obviously that's a, a subject that's near and dear to a lot of people in FP&A's heart. Can you talk a little bit about how the article came about? Well, first of all, we were doing things differently. We figured that we are doing things differently and we obviously believe that it to be a better way of doing things. And uh, so Nicholas decided to write about this company of the future that we're building. And every kind of business leader was uh, writing about their own. So for example, the head of sales, uh, he wrote about why we don't do discounts at Chili Piper. And so for me, he was writing about my work is why we don't do budgets and why kind of budgets is a dirty word at Chili Piper. Interesting. And so you know, can you talk about why didn't you guys do budgets? Maybe can you just talk a little bit about you know, what led to that determination that there was a different and, you know, better approach for you guys? We felt that budgets actually come from very large companies and, you know, probably very large companies, it does make a lot of sense. But the, the inherent problem is that the budget, first of all, let's say you're doing some activity and it's yielding you some result. If halfway through the activity, you figure that it's not working, why would you still keep pushing it? But if you have a budget, that's exactly what you do. You sort of you let it play out all the way, even if you know already that it's not working. And the same thing, if actually you start doing something, you realize that this is giving you a large return, but you're not going to invest more because you say, oh, well, we're out of budget and you have to wait until the next quarter or even the next year to actually do more of what you know, already know works. It just felt silly to be living that way. And, and I've heard from other people in other companies where Let's say they figured, oh, well, we have a problem because we're data blind. Okay, so let's get a data tool. And then so we budget $5,000 for it. But it turns out that the data tool costs $7,000. And so now, oh, well, are we really not going to buy a data tool because it costs you know $7,000 instead of five? But that's exactly what budgets will do. And that's exactly what happened in that company. But at the same time, everybody says, oh, well, we're, we're struggling because we're blind. We don't know the data, but yet we can't spend an extra $2,000 in this tool. So... That's the kind of logic that just didn't make sense to us. So it's every time you see everything that you do, you figure out whether that has a positive return or not. And if it has a positive return, then let's invest. And if it doesn't, then let's not even invest $1. And I think the other good thing is that it gives people a lot of ownership and responsibility. So because it's not like you say, hey, here's $10,000, do what you can. You're actually saying, here's nothing, here's zero. And unless you tell me what you think you're going to do and how that's going to deal results, you're not going to get anything. Then suddenly people are like, actually, well, there's a lot of cool things I want to try. And the discussion is just much more rich. And there's so many initiatives. And because people know that they're not restricted by some budget, they know that if something interesting comes up, they're able to execute on it because after discussion, they'll actually get the resources that they need. Thanks for sharing that. And you know, one thing I found really interesting is the article, you started out with the first line saying, if you're an agile or fast moving company, which obviously a big mature company isn't, right, as a general rule, an agile, fast-moving company, a budget is like a shackle. You'll be held prisoner to the assumptions you make for the next year. Can you maybe, I think you've talked a little bit about that, but 
Can you break that down just a little further for us, what you meant by that statement? Let's say you're planning to grow 100%, right? Which nowadays may be a bit more challenged, but that's kind of what the startups are looking at every year. If you're saying you're going to grow at 100%, it means that you're going to grow the same amount of revenue as you've done for all of your past years together, right? If you're growing from 5 to 10, let's say you grew to 5%, 5 million of ARR over three years, you're going to say, in this one year, we're going to do exactly the same. But you don't actually, so of course, you know the linear things, you know how much like each SDR is going to yield. But that's because you know that from your first 5 million, but for the next 5 million, that yield is probably going to change. But if you're saying that that's still going to work as you go from, you know, five to 10, then you're probably going to run into trouble towards the second half of the year because suddenly those assumptions don't hold true anymore and you have to figure some things out. But, you know, either halfway through the year, you already know you're going to fail in your, let's say, forecast and you do nothing. You're just going to. So what do you do the second half of the year? Do you just live in misery or do you try to figure out a better way? So that's the whole point is that you need to have your eyes open every day and look around and see what's happening and reevaluate all the time, not just once a year uh, at the budget meeting. Got it. So just, you know, a couple questions. So obviously you don't have budgets, but is there a high level kind of plan or target going into the year that you know you want to achieve? And then you basically throughout the year use, I think what you called the ROI mindset to decide what to invest in to achieve that? Or how do I think about, because obviously you got investors, there has to be some targets, there's some planning that goes on, but maybe can you walk through yep. you know, how you do that connection from that plan to the way you uh, deal with this you know, forecasting approach? Of course, there's definitely targets, but uh, fundamentally there's two approaches, right? Let's say top down where investors, CEO gives you a number and say, you got to hit it. And then you just back sell that. Yep. Which, I don't think it fundamentally works, but it gives you a direction of travel. So you say, okay, well, we kind of want to get to that 100%. Let's see what we got to do. But then the real work is the bottoms up. And it's not actually, so we have targets, but the targets are not given by finance or the CEO. The targets are figured out by the, the business leaders themselves. So the head of sales says, okay, well, how much can I deliver the head of marketing that they actually give the numbers to me and I just put them together in a model. So it's important also because it's not me forcing something onto them because I don't know if I was as good as they are in their respective fields and I'd be doing that, but I'm not. So I'm, I'm doing the finance piece. I'm just putting it all together, but it's their numbers and it's their sense of ownership that they know that, okay, well, we discuss them, we figure out, okay, is this realistic? Maybe this can be pushed higher. So there is this discussion, but in essence, it's they own the numbers. So they set the targets and they deliver against their own targets, not against my targets. It sounds like if I'm hearing this right, the way to think about it is, one, it's the bottoms up approach. You get to that target or what you think you're going to achieve. You have a plan that you can measure against. So, hey, you know, January based on what everybody's given us, we think we can get to a million. But throughout the year, you're really not worrying about that initial budget. You're making each decision based on, hey, is this a good return? Let's look at the ROI on that. And you know that initial target is just that, it's a target. Whatever makes sense now, that's what we focus on versus what you often see companies very focused on. Okay, we got to get back to the budget. Here's the budget. It's not in the budget. So we can't do it or oh, we got to find the money from somewhere else. It's really a mindset shift with a planning process focused on a constant return on investment. Is that 
the way to think of it? Yeah, it's exactly right. I think the bigger challenge is obviously that when you ask that of your executives, they also need to be mindful that say, okay, they don't have to deliver 100% year-in-year growth. They can do 20% year-in-year growth. But they need to be mindful that if that's what they're aiming for, then their equity is going to be worth much less. So their options are going to be worth much less and their bonuses and so on. So it's it's kind of making sure that people are very aware uh, of the context and like what is valued by, let's say, the investor community. And it's that kind of, so you have to work with them as well. So you can't just say, you know, give me some numbers and that's it. You have to say, well, okay, you're telling me this. It's likely that what if we deliver that, then the implication is something else. So that's the, it's this ROI mindset and it's giving people a lot of the, everything that they could possibly need in order to make good decisions. The other kind of aspect of the ROI mindset is that there's never a shortage of money. It's not about the, whether we have cash, it's about the cost of capital. So there's always more money out there. Sometimes you might have to, you know, saw off your hand, but it's there. It's always there and it might be excessively expensive. But it's never a closed market. I mean, that that doesn't happen if you're a startup. And it's just that, again, everything is possible. It just has a cost to it. So you you, you do this balanced uh, equation. You do, you know, how much can we grow? What is it going to cost us? If we grow faster, that's going to cost us maybe more because we need to get more resources. That's expensive. It's really having this balance since this as every turn, you, you try to figure out what is the you know, we can do more, but what is it going to cost us? And is it worth it? It's like building a portfolio of projects. So that's the analogy. Which makes sense when you mention kind of that ROI mindset, return on investment, because you know, it's often how you think of portfolios, what's the return? And it feels like, you know, as a finance person, there's a lot of education you do here. It's like, okay, we well, can grow at 20%, but that means, you know, the equity you have is going to be worth 40% of what, you know, you expected when you came in based on kind of the original plan we put together. And so it feels a little bit like almost a continuous planning with a portfolio ROI mindset. So obviously you're not throwing out the whole process and saying, hey, we don't need a plan. Just come to us when you have a good idea and let's see what it looks like. They're still measuring and performance, but it's very much an ownership mindset, a bottom down. And let's not be beholden to something we set up that Frankly, in most companies, the day the budget's finished, it's not achievable, right? Because things have changed. It doesn't, it could be above or below, but- Or it's easily achievable, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's, whatever number you finished with, it's almost to a certain extent, often irrelevant when you're done. That's exactly right. Right, you know, bet for better or worse. Yep. I can see that. I've always been a fan of more of a rolling forecast approach, and it's just figuring out how you manage the incentives. And so a little bit around that, because, right, you know, budget, I think a big part of why budget is set up the way it is, for better or worse, is the incentive structure, yeah. right? It's the, okay, these are the numbers I need to achieve. And if I get them, I know I'm going to get a big bonus. So I don't care about anything else. It's just getting to that number. So how did you guys manage kind of, you know, the incentive structure without having that, the budget? that kind of formal budget process in place? How was that thought about? I'll split this answer probably in two parts. Okay, sure. The less cynical part is about what I personally like is, is kind of this RevOps approach, is that you try to really break down what each person is responsible for. Like, what is their conversion rate? You, you can only pay people based on things they can actually have an effect on. And so you you try to isolate what that effect is, but also ask them only to do those specific things. So maybe 
on a specific example, again, let's go back to the SDRs, the sales development representatives. Sure. What companies often would do, they would say, here's a laptop, here's a bit of a salary, just go get some meetings, right? But the problem is that there's scalability, but there's no predictability. And so if you wanted to add a third, a fourth, a fifth, you wouldn't know because you would just give them a laptop. So what do you do? You tell them, here's an account list, a specific uh, sort of named accounts that you're going to go after. And your responsibility is to book meetings. Whether those meetings are of good quality is the responsibility of the person who created the account list, not the SDR themselves. So, And then in that scenario, you can pay them for meetings booked. And if somebody comes back and says, uh, oh, actually, all the meetings that you booked were of low quality, then you go back to the system, you go back to the manager, you go back to the account list, but you don't go back to the SDR because they are actually doing exactly what you told them to do. So it's that kind of slight uh, mindset shift that you say, okay, well, can you have an effect on this? Yes or no? And then, so we pay you based on that. So that's the practical advice. The cynical advice is that all targets are a mirage because I think finance teams all over the world know very well that you know, the targets can be a little bit above, the targets can be a little bit below. The question is, for me, targets are about what kind of culture do you want? Do you want a culture where we're always a little bit behind and we're always struggling or a culture where everybody's always winning a little bit and we're all happy? I don't think targets are a performance management tool. They're more like a cultural management tool. It's sort of where do we end up all of us together? Are we happy? Are we not? And because like we saw in the, let's say in the last years, a lot of companies, what they started doing for sales, for example, they started promising huge uh, OTs, so on-target earnings. Uh, but they already knew that those earnings are not achievable because maybe half the team only ever gets to that level. So again, it's a mirage and it's, you know, whether you do that on purpose or by accident, but hopefully you do it on purpose because then you're clearly trying to achieve some goal. I like your example there of on-target earnings, right? So often when you dig into it, you say, okay, OTE could be 300,000, right? Whatever, just throwing out a number. And then you ask, well, how many people were above OTE? Uh, 2%. Okay, so 98% was below. So what was the average? And the average is like 160. So what you're telling me is I have almost zero chance of earning on OTE. So what, you know, why? Then there's usually some kind of reason. I do like how you said you want to try to create, you know, quick wins. And I can understand, you know, both approaches, the cynical that you mentioned and the non-cynical with targets. And, you know, I've always felt that that's probably one of the biggest things is how to, you know, best decouple targets from budgets to go to more of a continuous planning approach. Because I definitely think there's some benefits of having that. doesn't mean you don't plan. It doesn't mean you don't have, you know, targets and incentives and all the things that you do with a budget, it just changes the mindset and the approach. At least that's how I kind of think about it. So I appreciate that discussion. That's really, you know, kind of helpful and fascinating to see, you know, there. One other thing I wanted to ask you about from the article. So, you know, you talked about two distinct types of managers and kind of some pros and cons to each of them. And I really liked uh, what you mentioned, you know, in this frame, you said there's the uh, manager that's the powder keg and the manager that's the sniper. Could you explain that analogy, what you meant by that and kind of what the difference is between those managers and maybe the benefits and challenges they create? Yeah. So actually, that's a, just to also kind of mention it. It's a, it's a framework borrowed from uh, Matt Robinson, who's at Nested now, I think. And the other caveat is that also both of these 
let's say categories of managers that it, it applies to competent managers. So putting aside the you know lack of competency, let's just focus on those two, just on competent people. So so the powder kegs are the ones where you light the fuse and they just explode in every possible direction. So you hire them, they're competent, they're excited, they know exactly what to do. You know, they come in, they set up the processes, they buy the right tools, they hire the right people, all these good little things. And the first 90 days is just a wild ride of progress and, and all these kind of, you know, you get educated because they're telling you what you've been doing wrong the whole time. And I think that sounds all good, but the problem is they never stop to think whether the company needs that. So they need that as managers to prove themselves. And let's say their department needs those things, but whether the company needs them right now is I think still a question mark. And that's where sort of the snipers come in. So they are aware that there's all these things that they could be doing. So the processes, the hires, the tools, but they take a, a bit of pause and try to understand whether the company needs this right now, or maybe it's something we do in, in 12 months. So the, the example I mentioned is NetSuite. So, you know, you're coming in as a new CFO. It's easy to say, you know what I'm going to do? Nothing works until I implement NetSuite. So I'm going to do that for 12 months and then talk to me again. But the reality is maybe that's not necessary. Maybe QuickBooks is just fine. Just keep working with that. When it really starts hurting, then you go to NetSuite. But just be mindful that that is a large endeavor. And I think that distinction is very, very important. That The problem is that as a senior leader, you really have to trust these snipers and not say, hey, it looks like you're not doing anything. It's just no. They're deliberately avoiding doing things not to distract the company as such. So thank you for the analogy. And when I first you know, read this article, it reminded me a little bit. I worked for a large uh, bank and they were talking about us versus another bank. And they're like, you know, one, when making a decision, one just points and points and points like, you know, very deliberate. And the other one just points and shoots. Just a little bit like the powder keg. It's like, all right, we see the problem. Just go tackle it, whether it makes sense or not, whether it's the right timing, because it's a problem. And so you just kind of run off and start, you know, solving them. And there's not always the strategic to it, where the sniper, it's very deliberate. And you may not always see what they're doing up front, but over time, you start to realize, okay, the progress is being made. It's just being done in the right way, in the right pace versus just being done everywhere, so to speak. Exactly. And I think coming back to the context of the, the ROI mindset and the budgets and all those things, you know, if you assume that money is infinite or it just has a cost, the one thing that is not infinite is uh, executive attention and just like headspace, right? So if there's just too many things in your head, there's it's not possible physically to put more things in. And so that's why sometimes you really have to figure out what are the things we're not going to do because it's just not worth the headspace for us right now. So I think it's really actually important to really focus on. And actually what I loved was uh, there was this video and somebody was talking about how how Steve Jobs said that prioritization is not doing things you don't want to do. It's actually not doing the things that you really, really want to do. And that's, again, comes back. To this, you, you have to evaluate. Is this a, a worthy destruction or not? Yeah, you know, I've been learning that the hard way in a business. I've had more opportunity than I ever expected. And I want to take all of them and I've been slowly getting better at like, no, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't fit to who I am. Just close that door is you know, a good mentor of mine put it, you know, strategy is about closing doors, right? It's about limiting down the opportunities and being laser focused on what you need to do. And when the times are right, yeah, she'll occasionally open doors, but more often it's about closing out the noise 
and staying focused than it is about opening up a bunch of doors and running through all of them. I can totally relate to that both on a personal level and just, you know, professionally in my experience. So I appreciate that. If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com backslash FPA. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. If you would like to earn continuing education credit for your FP&A certification from the Association of Finance Professionals for listening to the show, go to the show notes for details on how to earn the credit. Finally, if you enjoy listening to FP&A today, please go to your podcast platform of choice, click the subscribe button, and leave a rating and review of the show. And now, on to the show. So last question around, you know, the budgeting process, and I've enjoyed this discussion. It's given me something to think about. And I think there's, you know, definitely a lot of similarities with what you're doing to the idea of the budget process. Well, you know, kind of unshackling the things that make the budget process less than ideal, taking apart that target and recognizing that, look, having a number at the beginning of the year isn't maybe the best way to approach this, especially if we're growing fastly. We need to be nimble. So I've enjoyed this discussion. Let's say somebody listening wants to implement kind of the approach that you've talked about. What would you recommend, you know, for them? How would you recommend they try going about that or getting started? I think the best way is to increase the cadence of, uh, in this case, rebudgeting. So if you're budgeting yearly, try to do it quarterly. If you're budgeting quarterly, try to do it monthly. Monthly might be a bit tough. So what you, what you can do is, uh, just, Try to re-budget bits and pieces of the business. So if something is very predictable, it always does the same thing and you've kind of hit the ceiling and so you know exactly how it works, don't touch it, just let it work. But if there are things that you don't know, then you, you, you want to you experiment with, just re-budget those and add them into the plan. So I think that's the best way. It's really increasing the, the cadence of your evaluation. It feels like if I'm hearing it right, it's really kind of moving more and more to that continuous forecast methodology where you're just constantly revisiting your numbers, right? And what about mindset? What about if people are struggling with this idea, this ROI mindset? Any advice around kind of that shift? I think on a practical level, the best way is to have the finance team uh, educate the, the leadership, the rest of the leaders, or you know, if, if the company, if the people are ready to listen, do that. I did that for my, uh, personally as well. We had town halls and maybe once every six months, I would actually prepare some slides and explain how valuations work, how P&L works, how, what we're doing with the forecasting, just to give people context on what we're up to here. I think that gives people, uh, suddenly they're like, oh, I, I understand why we're putting these numbers together. I understand what they mean. I understand how they play into the larger organization. It's really, it's just this transparency and education. Not education, just, you know, Letting people, letting them, showing them what's inside the FPNA department, showing them why you're doing those things and why they matter and how it works together. I think that's very, very helpful. Thank you for sharing that. That makes a lot of sense, being transparent, you know, sharing with what's going on and making sure everybody's on the same page and they understand the philosophy and thinking. So you're moving on here. We have a few kind of standard questions we'd like to ask everybody. So I'd like to, you know, kind of move forward with those. And the first one here that we like to ask is, can you describe a time you have experienced a failure? And the reason I like to ask that is I look at failures as a learning experience. So maybe a failure you had at work and what you learned from the experience, what it taught you. 
So I think with, especially with my more recent financial planning career, I think the biggest, the failure that had one of the biggest effects was I kind of pushed this, uh, you know, I'm just here to gather the data. I'm not here to push targets on anyone. I kind of pushed it maybe a bit too far. And so what I did is I, when I was producing this analysis, I would just, you know, put the slide decks, I put all the, the right things on there, but I wouldn't actually call them out and say, Hey, everybody, please make, make sure you pay attention to this because I just assume that everybody's that everybody knows and they'll notice the right things and kind of led to some people suddenly being, hey, like, I didn't realize this has been happening for a few months, right? And I said, well, you know, it's in my slides. But yes, that's true. It is in my slides, but that's not helpful. If that's important, it's my job to actually call it out and to actually seek solutions and try to understand what's happening before somebody else actually calls it out. And I think that was one of the things where it was hard to sort of say, oh, well, you know, it was there for myself, because yes, it was there, but at the same time, I had produced the output, but I hadn't ensured the outcome. And that was something that uh, I had to learn a bit the hard way. Thank you for sharing that. And I can see where that's a learning experience where it's like, okay, it's my job to just present the information to them and they'll kind of figure it out from there versus help giving them the insights and things they needed so that they make sure they were aware of potential changes that were happening. So appreciate you sharing that one. Next question here. Now, moving forward, what do you see as the biggest opportunity and challenge for FP&A? I think the biggest opportunity is bringing in uh, people who have never been part of the FP&A process. So, you know, if you, if you kind of push it, of course, the head of sales, the VP of sales has always been part of the process. But uh, I think with improved tooling and ease of use, you can include not just maybe managers, but actually individual salespeople, you know, saying part of, they, they give their individual forecast that gets aggregated up to the, the common forecast. I think that's a great opportunity where really you have better outcomes because people will be more involved. I think the challenge on the flip side of that is that obviously that kind of system is complicated to set up and there's a lot of data and there's data hygiene and whatnot. And so again, you know, in order to do that, you're going to have to have some very smart data people that can really set it up that not only understand data piping, but they also understand the business side of things. And I think that can probably take, you know, easily a year to, to get that growing. But uh, I think once once you do get there, it's great, but it will be challenging. Thanks for sharing that. And I could definitely see where, you know, everybody having ownership for their number. There's definitely advantages to that and being able to have that very granular kind of bottoms up. And I could also see how that's a big challenge, right? That's a long process, a lot of data. So I appreciate you sharing that one. You know, next question here, and this is one we like to ask everybody is what is something unique about you that you can share with our audience? Something probably unique or interesting is that I've lived uh, in six, seven countries and on three continents. So I've seen a lot and I think that's quite unique because when I was living in Geneva in the international school, everybody was doing that and everybody had lived in so many other places and speaking so many languages. But when I moved to other places, I realized that actually that is quite unique and there's it's kind of a relatively small privileged group to be able to see all those things in the world. I know for myself, you know, I've lived in one country, I've lived in a couple different places within that one country, and I've been to, traveled to other countries, but so I can definitely say that's unique from, you know, my experience and most people I know to have lived in five, six countries. I have a few friends that have lived in you know, a lot of different countries, but not many. I would say that's unique. Next one, this is a question we ask everybody. Our sponsor is DataRails. You know, they're big uh, fans of Excel. So we like to ask, what is your favorite Excel feature, function, formula, your favorite thing about Excel? 
If I want to sound smart, I say offset. <laughs> but uh, in reality, it's uh, V lookup and pivot tables. Those are my favorites because it tends to be that you kind of, there's a large data set that I need to get an answer. I just download it and I, and I pivot it, I V look it up and then I get my answer. So that's the reality. Those are two of my favorite functions. Well, you're in good company because I know those are two of our top three answers we get from people. I know V lookup and pivot tables are both right at the top. I can't remember if they're one and two or two and three, but they're right up there. So good answers on both those. They just work and they do the job. So They do. You know, lookups, whether it's VLOOKUP, index match, whatever lookup you're using, lookups and summarizing your data, they're at the top of the list. And VLOOKUP and pivot table do that. So I think everybody can appreciate that. So let's assume somebody's starting their career today in FP&A. What advice would you give them? So I'd say if you haven't started your career yet in FPNA and you're still thinking about it, I would say, you know, do the banking route, do the consulting route. I think you learn a lot. A lot of those trainings are super expensive and the companies pay for them. So you're just learning on somebody else's dime. So and then, and you know, the, the professional skills you learn, they're just they're very valuable and, and the work ethic, just do that. If you're actually already in it, I would say uh, try to learn data. That's something I haven't done, to be honest, but I think the sooner you're comfortable, let's say, stepping out of whatever Excel can do and being able to do SQL, I think it would just, just kind of very, very helpful in the future. On a more professional skill level, what I've found to be very, very helpful is actually have lunch or just have chats with uh, the business leaders. So really get to know them. Like, how do they think about it? How do they see you? And the next thing to do is also have the same lunches and chats, not just with the leaders, but also the individual contributors. Because then you can see how someone saying, you know, we got to deliver 100 this quarter, how that gets translated to the leaders and then how that gets translated to the individual contributors. And that message is not a linear. It's very, there's all these sort of noise in the middle and, and they, the way that people uh, see it is very, very different from how it actually gets translated into you. So it's kind of, uh, and I actually learned this in forensics. I had a one forensics project is that, uh, you got to ask the same question to different types of people uh, and then you actually see how information travels through the organization. Yeah, when you said that, it's I don't know if you've ever played the game Telephone. Yeah, it's exactly that. As a kid, the idea was, right, you say something, you give it to the next person and by the time 10 people have heard it, what they said is almost completely different than what person one said. So that whole translation. So yeah, the more you can get to know the different people in the business, the more you can understand the challenges and how different people are putting their own filter on it and translating what's going on and allows you to provide greater insight and you know help create value for the business. So I really like that one. And a you know, good point. I think a lot of people you know, that have come to FP&A have come from a banking route. So it's definitely something people consider the consulting or the banking. And then very last question here. If someone wants to learn more about you or get a hold of you, what is the best way for them to contact you? So you can uh, find me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active on. My handle proudly is linkedin.com slash IN slash EBITDA. Uh, it's been for a few years. So that's, that's how you find me. I didn't realize it was IM. I think I may have saw that when I was looking, but that that's great. I snagged the FP&A guy. So that's my handle for LinkedIn. So I had a little fun too. Yeah, it's always good when you can get a unique candle like that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed chatting with you and, you know, spending a few minutes. And Thanks for having me. We'll let you go so you can enjoy your uh, evening. I think it's probably, what, about 7, 8 o'clock for you now? Yeah, 8, eight, eight o'clock now. Yeah. 
eight o'clock. So we'll let you enjoy your night. But thank you again for joining us. And thank you. I look forward to our audience, you know, listening to this. Thank you very much. Thank you.